Hello and welcome to episode number 244 of the Armin Show podcast. We are in 2020. We have made our way here. Wonderful new decade, new year, and guest who has a brain imaging center at the university that I went to at one point, UCSB. We have Dr. Scott Grafton, author of Physical Intelligence. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to participate. This is wonderful. Now, first thing I thought of when I saw your book, Physical Intelligence, was uh, author Daniel Goleman many years ago wrote Emotional Intelligence, Social Intelligence, and later Ecological Intelligence, but he never tackled physical intelligence. This is another dimension of intelligence that we have and specifically covered in your book. What led you to this category of intelligence? Well, part of it was my own expertise in this in the subject area and also it was sort of a reaction to where the field has gone in terms of you know understanding intelligence i my background is as a neurologist and i used imaging for decades to look at how we organize action and behavior and do things uh, with our bodies and there's a lot of intelligence that it takes to, to just move around in the world right and uh so that's that's what I've always been interested in, and now I'm in. I find myself out of a medical school and in regular academia, and I study in the field of uh, cognitive neuroscience, where intelligence and the mind are almost entirely framed in terms of emotion, communication, social intelligence, memory, and language. And it's as if everyone's forgotten there's even a body, right? And uh, so we're sort of, it's become a disembodied uh, science. And I wanted to bring back the notion of sort of physical intelligence and embodied cognition into the whole space. And so this was an attempt to do that. Mm -hmm. Now, just some of the background here. You got your bachelor's from University of California, Santa Cruz in math and psychobiology, MD from University of Southern California. What was your experience like at those two institutions, more so University of Southern California, getting your MD. What do you remember from that period? <laughs> this is like a memory test. This is fun. <laughs> uh, well, I went into medical school really focused on neuroscience. I knew from day one that I wanted to do brain science of some kind, primarily as a clinician. Um, I love neurology. And uh, really a highlight for medical school for me was taking all my elective time over two years and going and studying at Queen Square, the National Hospital in London, which is probably the oldest operating neurology hospital in the world. I mean, it goes back pre-Victorian era. Wow. In fact, you work on these wards, you almost feel like you're a Victorian doctor. And so it really taught me a lot of the clinical skills as a neurologist. And I really uh, sort of still really am proud of having gotten to go there. And then, and then, you know, you, the, what happens in medical school is you bounce around like a ping pong ball. You know what you want to do, but you get distracted along the way. Do you want to be a neurosurgeon and operate on people's brains? Do you want to be a radiologist and just look at brain scans? Do you want to tap people's knee reflexes and be a bedside neurologist and Eventually, I settled on uh, clinical neurology and did that for quite a bit. But underneath all that it was still this sort of real interest in sort of brain structure and function, how it all works together, 
sort of the network aspect of how the brain is organized and controls its dynamics. And so that kind of led me into um, sort of the early days of neuroimaging, very, very primitive approaches. But in the 80s, we were, you know, after, after doing clinical neurology, I started doing fellowship in brain imaging and was trying to understand uh, sort of just how brain areas activate, how different areas interact with each other and kind of work sort of in unison to create movement, action, accomplish goals, things like that. You created the, or you're the director of the UCSB Imaging Center. How did you come to be that? Did you create it? How did you join that? And what it's, goes on there? Yeah, I've, I've been through this exercise a couple of times. Up, in, up through the uh, mid-90s, the only way you could scan a brain and look at functional activity um, was with PET imaging, positron emission tomography. So you mm -hmm. inject a radioactive compound, it circulates through the blood and in the brain, and the, the amount of circulation or the amount of metabolism reflects how much of different brain areas are, are active. Uh, it's, it works great, but you're really limited in the amount you can do that because you're working with radioactivity and you're working with normal subjects and slightly increasing the risk of cancer. So it's not a great method for a lot of uh, sort of ethical reasons. Um, and then MRI came along and we figured out you could do much of this with a regular MRI scanner. And there you can, you can collect scans for hours and hours with, and the exposure is essentially to magnets and radio frequency energies, not much worse than your cell phone, really. So it's it's enormously safe, and it it just took off in the mid '90s. And early on, all the MRI was done in radiology departments in hospitals. That's where the MRI scanners were. And it was always hard to just do interesting research in normal subjects because you were competing for time on the scanner with patients who needed scans for lots of clinical reasons, right? And so that was a bit frustrating. And I got recruited to Dartmouth in 2000 to start an MRI center there that was freestanding. It was in a psychology department actually, oh. at Dartmouth. And it was the first one of its kind in the country. And when we started it, everybody says, oh, you can't do this. You need to be in a hospital. You need physicists, you need a whole staff. And I got to run this center on a, with a really small staff. Um, and we proved kind of to the world that you could actually run an MRI center outside of a hospital, outside of a clinical environment and do interesting research. And that became sort of the standard that everyone's followed since. And there's now, you know, psychology departments and cognitive neuroscience programs all over the U S that, that have these scanners. And so, um, so I did that there and then coming back to, it was just coming to UCSB was a chance to get back to California and essentially do the same thing here. That makes sense. It's nice that there is a progression of the technology. Is PET used as much now? What are the main methods right now? It's not used much anymore for studying normal people doing tasks to see what brain areas light up. MRI just beats it hands down for that. Mm -hmm. It has a lot of important applications clinically. You can inject people with radioactive glucose, and that, for example, will be taken up by a, a 
tumors quite avidly. And so there's this whole methodology called whole body PET where I can scan your whole body and very quickly and figure out if there are any hotspots in there that indicate tumor. Now we don't use that for screening, but it gets used in complicated cases where you can't decide, for example, if there's scar tissue or recurrent tumor. So that's a that's a big application. Another hot application now is for patients with dementia or uh, traumatic encephalopathy, figuring out if they've got amyloid in their brain or whether they have tau in their brain. So there are radioligands that will bind to either amyloid or tau. And so there's a there's a real hot science right now of looking at these um, molecules in the brain of people who are dementing, whether from trauma or uh, just from Alzheimer's, and trying to figure out which comes first, the amyloid or the tau or something else. So that's, that's a big area for PET right now. Mm. How often, uh, what percent of brain research is done on what would be thought of as a fully healthy brain, or is that not almost touched usually? With PET or with MRI? Uh, uh, any kind. Oh, a huge, well, non-invasively, we do thousands of studies on normal subjects with MRI. I mean, mm -hmm. if there's, there's, there's probably over 30,000 publications that have used MRI to scan normal people's brains to say, well, does this area light up when you do X? Does this area light up when you do Y? Trying to make, trying to make sort of functional maps of all the different modules in the brain. Mm -hmm. One thing I noticed, I like this during the course of your book, you talk about walking through a forest, the experience uh, through it, when you're looking at trees, walking over rocks. I used to think about that when I jump across rocks in a creek. This is the most mechanically processing thing I can do because I have to adjust, adapt, I don't want to fall. You talked about that in the book. What are some of the key things that we hone in on when we're in a physical environment? and how much brain capacity is sent to those sections? The, we do a lot. In fact, you know, my view of the brain is very different from most people's. Most people think, well, all the action stuff is down in your spinal cord and your muscles, and most of what your brain is doing is thinking. I think most of what the brain is about is just keeping yourself moving through the environment without getting hurt. <laughs> and managing the complexities of just action. And a very little bit of brain power is actually available for doing things like thinking, a conscious thought, right? So it's, I, I have a very different view than most people. I've, the truth is probably somewhere in between. Um, but yeah, under the hood, the, the, the trick here is we are kind of um, stuck in understanding ourselves through this lens of sort of our conscious mind, right? We, 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 we have this ability to introspect, but the introspection is quite shallow and it doesn't get down at, like we can't think about what our brainstem is doing to keep our blood pressure up so we don't pass out, or we can't introspect to the point where we uh, really know what our spinal cord is doing so that when we're running from rock to rock, we don't trip and fall. For good reason, right? We don't. If if you if you had that kind of access, you could potentially kill yourself, right? You don't want to, you don't want your conscious right. mind to be tinkering around with your blood pressure, your heart rate, you know. 
wouldn't be great. It wouldn't be great. Uh, so, so there are firewalls. Uh, they're very clever firewalls. And uh, we're just starting to understand what these are. But So that makes it hard to study these things, right? Because uh, you can't use introspection to get at these systems. You have to just look at them more directly through animal models and other kinds of experiments. So there's a whole lot of stuff built in there. And some of it's really primordial, right? You know, we're born with certain capacities that go way back evolutionarily. You know, like uh, we don't walk into walls. We don't walk into trees, right? We weave through obstructions. And we, could, we do that with very little thought or no thought. And that requires 3D vision, uh, very sophisticated perception about surfaces and objects. And, uh, you know, there, I, I have a section in the book where I talk about some patients that Gordon Holmes described in 1917. There were soldiers who'd been shot in the back of the head in World War One, And they're very selective brain injuries that took out their ability to see three-dimensional space and depth. And as soon as you do that, it becomes really tricky to walk through the environment. Like the one soldier would just get stuck you put a box in front of him and he couldn't figure out how to walk across around the box. Right. Huh. I mean, that's a really dramatic example of how you've got this system built into you uh, that you take for granted. You take it out. You, you can't even navigate through the simplest of worlds. And, uh, so that's, so there's, a, there are a lot of capacities like that in terms of visual perception. Uh, we can go on and on with examples. I like that one. When you mentioned it, as far as vision, you talked about when a person's walking through the forest, maybe 40% of the time is looking at the path and then where 40% else is spent. And then 20% is just to the people around or like yeah. a hockey player, the higher level you go, as far as skill, the less you're actually seeing everything directly, but it's more a blur and you just have a sense of where things are. Like yeah. A there's, a, there's a, there's a fantastic, if you see the movie Ford versus Ferrari, it just came out. There's a great quote in there. Christian Bale plays um, the driver Miles, where he talks about the faster you go, the more things stop, seem like they're not moving, and the more your awareness expands, right? And, and this is the exact opposite to what everybody studies in the laboratory when they talk about doing research and attention. Everybody talks about holding really still, don't move the eyes, and seeing how attention can move around in space like a, a zoom lens. And this, and he, you know, he, he, he flips that on its head and says, you know, when you're in these really dynamic environments and ones that are at high risk, your awareness actually opens up. We know far less about that kind of perception. And it's really interesting and really essential to survive in the, in the natural environment. Branches right. fall down animals sneak up on you all kinds of things happen the responses we have to have one thing that came to mind when i was reading around that part was a uh, past person i had talked to a psychologist stephen hayes he had attention schema theory that was a way of representing consciousness as it's where your attention is which is not too far off in the motorway as described here by body schema can you talk about body schema and what that represents like the body map that we have Yes, yes. The, this, is, this is a little bit tricky because we can sort of understand body at sort of three levels uh, that kind of range from completely unconscious sort of 
pragmatic understanding all the way up to real high levels of sort of uh, how do we identify with ourselves? What, what, what do I think of myself consciously? So we've got to be careful. There's, there's multiple bodies and there's mul actually multiple brain areas that represent different aspects of the body. The body schemas, it was proposed by Holmes and Head in the, oh, around 1911. They, they were, at the time, the best clinicians at figuring out how to test a patient to see whether they can sense position with their body. Can you tell if you're moving your finger up or down? Can you um, tell all, position across all the joints? Can you tell um, if you're moving or not, right? And so they put all this together and said, no, the person has to combine all this information across all the joints and all the muscles and create some kind of little map in their brain of where they are, what's, what's their current position, right? It's a little bit like a Gumby doll that you can bend around any way you run. At any given moment, it has a shape. Right. You have to hold that shape. And it's really complicated because it's three-dimensional. Mm -hmm. It changes if you have a backpack on, right? Uh, right? You know, Because if you have the backpack on, you can't duck under a branch and so forth. So, so it always has to be updated and revised. And so that was the schema. And then we realized that you could really, um, the schema can get quite distorted in patients. For example, migraine patients, if, if the migraine attacks sort of the schema area of the brain, they'll get wild distortions. They'll feel like their head's giant or pinheaded or they'll feel four feet tall or 10 feet tall. Wild, wild reshaping until the migraine passes through. Um, there was some, uh, yeah, so that's, that's schema. And so clearly you need that to do anything really sophisticated with your body. If you're, if just think if you're a, a Bronco bull rider, right? That's like one of the most dynamic, you're getting thrown all around on this bull and you're trying to hang on at every given moment. You need <laughs> to know your center of gravity and, and where you are to compensate for the, the thrusts coming from the bull. Mm -hmm. another, another good example is, you look at Alex Honnold two years ago when he climbed up El Capitan without a rope, right? I mean, that's one of the ultimate physical accomplishments, pieces of physical intelligence. And everybody focuses on his strength and his fingers, right? But if you yes. think about uh, what, what that, the movie about him misses is the thousands of hours he's spent rehearsing that and what he's rehearsing primarily is body poses and he's he's training his body schema over and over and over so he just this exquisite sensitivity of knowing exactly how to position your center of gravity with respect to how you're shaped and you've got a thousand different moves you know it's a little bit like gymnastics or uh you know, any, any kind of sport uh, ballet where you really have to sculpt your body position dynamically over time. He's, he's doing the same thing, just at a really high level of risk. Mm -hmm. On that note, how much of a physical action can be prepared for or figured out before doing it by thinking about it or imagining the process? Is it like 80% of the actual swinging a baseball bat, you can think through, practice through in your mind how you'll do it, and then you just adjust a little bit if you actually have a baseball bat in your hand? It's, yeah, this is, um, 
This is a tricky question, and there's no right answer because it depends on what the action is. Mm -hmm. um, there's no question we can create motor programs, just like you could program a computer or a robot to do a stereotyped action, right? Mm -hmm. So you can think of a baseball swing like that, right? You could you could easily train a robot to swing a baseball bat mm -hmm. with a set of commands. So in us, we've we must have some kind of programs that can do that, and and we don't even have to do much pre-planning, right? We just call up the swing program and off we go, we do it. Yeah. Um, so we've got, we've got a lot of that in us, right? And, and the thing about those programs is they're, they're very clever in the way the brain programs them in that they're pretty flexible. We can handle bats of different lengths. We can handle bats at different weights. We can swing at different speeds. We can swing with a coat on, right? We can adapt very quickly. We can, we can tinker with the program really, really easily. If you think about, if you think about most of our actions, we're constantly doing that kind of tinkering. Um, if you think about something like, okay, I'm going to do uh, a, gym, a series of gymnastics floor moves, you know, a, a roll, a flip, a jump, a cartwheel, whatever. Yeah. I can think about that sequence of actions in advance mm -hmm. and I can rehearse those in my mind. Right. But I'm actually not calling up a program that's got them all there. Now I'm just going to play it out like a ticker tape right? or a tape recording. I, what I'm doing when I'm rehearsing primarily is just make, is going through the actual sequence a before B before C before D get mm -hmm. just, that's yes. what you're primarily remembering. And so if you look at the literature on whether or not mental practice helps physical skills, mm -hmm. um, it's really, de really depends. If you're bad at something, like you can't, like you've never swung a golf club before. Right. All the mental practice in the world isn't going to help you. Um, on the other hand, if, if you are a good golfer, then mental rehearsal at a certain level does help. And it tends to not be at the swing level, like thinking about, you know, how you're going to move your body. It tends to be more at the goal level. I'm going to really visualize seeing the ball going to the left or to the right. And then you let the body take care of itself. And the same is true in gymnastics. The actual doing of the actions doesn't benefit all that much from mental rehearsal. But if you're doing a sequence of these things, Mm -hmm. that rehearsing really helps you because it just helps, helps you with that flow of going from A to B to C to D. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like with the body, the heartbeats or the breathing for us to manage, it wouldn't really make sense. And then we do a higher level thing. Same thing. If there's a swing to do, we need to have the base there and then we want it to be on autopilot when we're actually Absolutely. You know, there's a, there's a great quote from the uh, a, a golfer from the 80s, Fuzzy Zoller. He's winning a tournament. He's walking up to the last hole and he said, how did you do it, Fuzzy? And he says, well, I've been brain dead all week. <laughs> right? In other words, he's not letting his conscious mind you know, interfere with, with uh, his motor programs and the adapting going on. And he's focusing on the goals and the outcomes, not on the means to get there. Mm -hmm. it's a huge deal it's like the subconscious is the efficient area and the conscious is where we clink and think and try it but then once it's got to get to the really smooth system underneath 
Yeah, the, the conscious mind is really good at the decision making and the goal setting. Yeah. Right? That makes sense. Now, how important is the specifically motor cortex in physical intelligence? And how important are other regions as compared to it? Right. So just to clear one thing up, um, mm -hmm. I have a footnote in the book, it should have been an entire chapter. Uh, <laughs> muscles have no memory. <laughs> People talk about muscle memory. It, if you're if you're in this field, it just you just shake your head because people believe that literally. Um, no, right. <laughs> they don't. Right. They change, and you know they get stronger and they get faster and they get more efficient or they can endure more, but they don't remember movement. They just <laughs> are movers. <laughs> so so right. everything has to be done either at the spinal cord, brainstem, brain, right, and. Um, the fact of the matter is, is you're shaping what the muscles are doing all the way through the neuroaxis, from the spinal cord all the way up into the, so some of the association areas. All these things can tinker with what the muscles are doing. So it's, it's, if you think about the muscles as being pulled by strings, you've got lots and lots of players who can pull on the strings. And that's, that's, that creates complexity for scientists who are really trying to come up with basic principles about how you would just organize even the simplest of movements like reaching and picking up a coffee cup uh, when so many things are involved. It's clear that uh, some areas like your brainstem, there's circuits through there that really are more about just tone and tension and balance and posture. You know, how stiff are you gonna make your limb when you pick, pick up the coffee cup? Um, the startle reflex is a good, a dramatic example of what those areas do, right? If someone sneaks up behind you and yells, boo, your whole body <laughs> tightens up, right? Right. And that's, that's, there's no, there's no cortex involved there. Right. What we, what we think the motor, and then the, we think the motor cortex is really key for what's, uh, well, we know it's really important for individuation, an individuation is just jargon to say really persnickety individual movements of independent muscles. So, you know, just typing, you know, individually moving each finger is individuation. We don't act, you know, we don't run, we're, we don't have this problem of typing with our index and middle finger at the same time. Right. Individuate them. So we can mm -hmm. do that with lots of muscles. Um, and with with lots of training and practice, you can you can generate all kinds of interesting individuation. Mm. The problem with individuation is is it's expensive, right? It's the opposite of trying to create. In some ways, it's the opposite of trying to create efficient, automatic programs. You're trying with individuation. You're trying to create as much flexibility as possible right, to solve problems. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, you want to create programs. And that's where I think there's more controversy in the literature is where programs reside in the brain, whether they're in these motor, premotor areas or subcortical areas. And what they what programs, how programs are actually built. One of the one of the really important ideas that's, that's sort of a hot area, at least for me, is this notion of what we call synergies. If you look at if you look at all the ways you use your hand, mm -hmm. all the stuff you pick up, and all the ways you use your hand, and you measure that, um, it's not like even though you have all this individuation of the fingers, mm -hmm. in fact, you use your hand about 
14 different ways, give or take, right? You can boil it down to about 14 different sort of basic patterns you use. So mm -hmm. now you can think, well, with 14 patterns, I'm going to turn the lights back on. Mm -hmm. 14 patterns, uh, <laughs> that's, that's psychic power. I just, One of the 14 ways. There you go. Uh, you know, if you, you want to create a basic set of, of underlying synergies, combinations of muscle movements, when you mix and match them, you can come up with all 14 hand movements. So now I can command and control all these different muscles with actually a really small set of combinations. So it's combinations of combinations over time gives you the ability to, to cook up pretty much most of the hand actions you need. So that's really cool. It's, uh, it's a very efficient way for the brain to um, generate a reasonable variety of actions with, with few commands coming from up top. Mm -hmm. So we think that a lot of movement is built that way. And so one of the fun things to do is just kind of hunt for synergies inside, you know, primitive synergies that we may have been born with. Mm -hmm. Some of these we're going to build through development and experience and knowledge. Uh, others were born with some of the ones we're born with, like uh, the way we can move our abdomen muscles mm -hmm. voluntarily the patterns in which you do that actually reflect the way things have been innervated all the way back to essentially lizards. <laughs> oh. they, they have the same kind of innervation and patterning. So we can just call on synergies that have been around for a really long time. And, yeah. You know, that's funny. That one reminds me of, uh, I once had Dr. David who of, I don't remember which university, but he wrote a book called how to walk on water and climb up walls. It's about bio locomotion. And talking about how, uh, you know, insects or organisms cut through sand using some sort of fulcrum maneuver right. or the ways a snake will ride through. And we, we mimic some of those things is what you were saying. Yeah, some of that's it's like these ghosts in the machine that are still built into us that we can draw on. Some, are, some really get buried, right? Because we have other movements we learn to do. And so it, some, of, some of the uh, belly dancing skills are actually you know, what you're learning to do is unearth and reveal these sort of hidden abilities. They were there the whole time. Yeah. One thing that comes up as far as being there the whole time, uh, you looked at babies and how when they start to move, they learn things from scratch. They're responding to things. They don't have the walls or understanding of what is not doable. How quickly do they develop that? And how often is research done with little people? Uh, yeah, so I draw heavily on the work of Karen Adolphs, who I just love her work, and uh, she's got a fantastic lab at NYU. She's really the leader here. I haven't done this kind of work. Um, it's, it, it, her work, some of it came from an age-old question, will a baby crawl off a cliff, right? Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, if you put them on a cocktail, if you put your, you know, crawling infant on a coffee table where they just go off the edge right. and that literature is messy because you can only do a few trials per baby uh it, it kind of wasn't going anywhere and uh a while ago she reframed the question and she said well what what kind of risks do they understand and it became and and what are they actually really doing during development because it's not sort of a yes or no question and so she would 
the, the classic experiment is you have like a playground slide that you, you can adjust the steepness. And if it's really, and you, you put carpet on it, so it's got some friction. And you ask, will a baby crawl down this thing? And if mm -hmm. it's really shallow, it'll crawl right down it. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's really steep, they'll also try to crawl down it. And, then, and so they have to catch them. And the same is true with toddlers. So a kid who's just barely walking will try to walk down stuff that's way too steep. And they learn by trial and error. And we forget how many thousands of times toddlers fall down in a day, right? As right. experimenting and figuring out what works and what doesn't work. So it's, it's, you know, it's through trial and error that, that we get a sense of, of sort of how we fit our environment, what we, what's doable in our environment. And, um, and, and what she, what her, her, her deeper insight was, you know, to think of, of infants and toddlers as experimenters, right? They're mm -hmm. not just doing this randomly. They're really experimenting. Mm -hmm. So if, if a toddler realizes they can't get down by walking, they'll try doing it by sliding, but they'll do it head first. And that's really crazy because of the center of gravity. And then they, and they learn to do it feet first, right? And they, that's when you have the most control. And actually adults do this too. If you take a friend into the wilderness and you take them down a gravel, a really steep gravel chute in the mountains and they've never been there before, mm -hmm. you can just watch them learn how to move their body in this environment. And so this, this ability to sort of experiment with, with what's around us and what's physically possible is something we do our entire lives. This is true. We just keep continuing it, but most of it happens early on. Oh, that's a good yeah. one, actually. How much of brain development in terms of physical intelligence is developed by age, let's say, 15, 20? Most. most. But, but uh, I'm a lifelong learner believer. I think, I think uh, just as much as the thing about physicality is just as much as you're learning motor programs and how you fit in the environment and what you can do, you're also forgetting all the time. You're getting rust never sleeps, right? Uh, you know, if you don't if you don't understand this, go set up a six foot ladder and go climb up that ladder and try to stand on the top rung. Mm -hmm. uh, you quickly realize you're a little shaky at this, right? Uh, you haven't been doing that. You know, it's not like a, a bicycle where you, a bicycle kind of you think, well, I can always ride a bike, but. Uh, it's a, it's a pretty easy task. Standing on the top of a ladder without it tipping over is pretty dicey. Mm -hmm. And you really have to have your physical abilities tuned and adapted uh, to do that reliably. And so we're always kind of retuning, relearning, readapting, you know, updating, refining. It, it never ends. One thing I just uh, came to mind and I wanted to, earlier I had said, uh, Stephen Hayes had talked about uh, attention schema theory, but I remembered it was uh, Michael Graziano who you mentioned in your book. And then I noticed the theme across uh, recent research in various categories that one book, uh, Nick Chater, The Mind is Flat, he's in London. And there's a connection between these concepts and similar to yours that the brain is not so high depth. It's more like it's just doing at the moment versus like there's like six layers occurring at the same time or all kinds of multitasking. What do you think about that? Um, 
Yeah, I think uh, an important, important way to frame this is uh, to think about it in terms of layering, mm-hmm. that it's a layered architecture. Mm-hmm. We like to think about systems as being sort of flat architectures. Uh, I try to think of a simple example. You know, my, my thermostat does one thing, right? It just, I set the temperature and it adjusts the furnace or the air conditioner to do essentially do one thing. That's a, that's a nice flat controlled architecture, but, but most complicated things are not like that. They're, they've got layers of control that are segregated from each other. And so that this conscious layer, right, has some interaction with what's deeper. Um, otherwise we wouldn't even be able, be able to move, right? It's gotta be able to drive you towards goals and actions, but it's really limited. And so there are real particular protocols about how different layers can interact with each other and uh, communicate. And, and that, so when we talk about what, how do we fit into our environment, some of, those, some of those layers don't fit in at all. Others are right at the interface of trying to understanding sort of um, sort of how, how we're engaged and embodied in, in the environment around us. So I think that's, that becomes really important when you're talking about what is consciousness. I mean, there's, there's lots of different kinds of consciousness, right? The fact that if I'm really overweight and I'm able to adjust my body motions to fit through a closing door due to my size, uh, you know, it tells you I'm, I'm conscious and aware of the environment, right? Uh, right. But I'm not at the same time, right? It's a it's a very different kind of consciousness than our our discussion or or me describing what I'm doing. Right. That is true. You have to fit through the various things that you see, and that's a kind of consciousness that you respond with. What is one thing? This comes to mind. Each uh, category of learning comes with some sort of insights or such. In physical intelligence domain, let's say there was a arbitrary people, what are some things they could do to improve their physical intelligence or things that are beneficial in this category from a person's perspective? Uh, so don't let me forget to come back and talk about uh, nature as medicine. Nature as medicine. Nature as medicine is, a, I think, is kind of the future of where this is going. Mm-hmm. Um, after writing the book, the view I came to was... Um, really becoming sensitive to the distinction between exercise and physical activity. This is one very specific example. It's the difference between uh, jogging on a treadmill, you know, in a hotel basement versus jogging in a park next to that hotel on a gravel trail, let's say. Mm -hmm. Right that there's something about the latter that's, that's uh, profoundly closer to what you were designed to do in the first place as a species. And when you're talking about physical intelligence, uh, we want this system to be trained to what, we wanna push it sort of in the dimensions along which it was designed to perform and the park is where you are designed to perform, not the treadmill. 
Now the treadmill is great if that's the only thing you got. I'm not saying don't exercise, but yeah. But I think because it's always good for your heart and your muscles and weight and everything else. But uh, the complexity is critical, right? We we evolved in really complex, ragged, rough, tough environments. That's what we're designed to be intelligent in. And to, to live a life in smooth surfaces, <laughs> for smooth, forgiving surfaces, is not, is not allowing us to gain the intelligence we really deserve. So I think that's, that's a big piece of it. Uh, so anything you can do to make, to, to complexify your, your physical engagement is, is a big deal. Uh, I like this concept quite a bit. I kind of live in this way, actually, to keep things to the entropy that the world already brings to us and not to deviate from that and get into something comfortable in any category, because then you're vulnerable to it's smoothed it out for that moment, but now it's not smooth in normal terms. I was actually I had one episode with the soccer player Cameron Porter, and he a key principle of his life is to maintain a connection with entropy in what he does so that he's not fixated on if you see him talk today or see him talk five years from now, you wouldn't fully know it was him. He's adapting to the world as it is. Right. I like that, that concept of entropy. And can you tell us about the fact that nature turns out to be medicine? Well, this, so now this, this concept, you know, this basic idea of the complexity, I mean, physical complexity is easiest to find in nature, I think, uh, rather than artificial constructs. And it has all, it, it's turning out to have potential interesting health benefits. So there's a big movement in Europe right now to study sort of green spaces and the degree to which green spaces uh, benefit health. I mean, there's even studies suggesting that if you're in a nursing home that's next to a park, you're going to live longer than if you're in a nursing home that's not. Now, there's no, the causal link there hasn't been nailed, but there's a, it's a, it's a thought-provoking uh, association worthy of pursuit. And, um, you know, we kind of, it makes sense. And it's not, what's different now than, let's say, I mean, in the 1970s, we'd say, oh, go back to nature. It was sort of this groovy, let's go meditate there because it's pretty. Yeah. It's, not, it's not for that reason. It's because it's physically more demanding. If you're, let's say, going from 60 to 80 years old, one of the highest risks you have as you age is falling down and breaking a hip and getting a pneumonia and dying, right? How do you maintain your ability to walk? What's the best thing you can do? Well, it's walking, but it's not just walking through malls. It's walking in varied environments, right? It's walking on all different kinds of surfaces, rough surfaces, stairs. I always like to think of those, you know, hundred year old, old ladies in Greece who are going up and down the stairs to get their, their village, right? It's just crazy, right? I mean, that's it, right? That's what that's the stuff that keeps you really strong and, and adapted in your environment. So, and that's just, that's just physical intelligence and it's, uh, it's a big deal. So that's kind of the focus I have is sort of the preserving physical integrity through these uh, more complicated environments. 
Now there's a, there's a deeper argument, which is that it's also really beneficial sort of for your mood, uh, your outlook, your self-esteem, your self-efficacy, um, and your overall ability to, to uh, sort of um, control your own behavior and set goals. And so this, this isn't so important in aging, but it's a, it is a big deal in adolescence. So I have colleagues who are really interested in things like, um, well, one of them runs a program where he brings really, really troubled teenagers at high risk, right? Um, into wilderness environments. They learn to hike, they learn to climb. And I put them in environments where you got to have your act together. Mm-hmm. And they also get to contemplate and meditate and do all that kind of stuff. But it's really, it's the first time they've actually gotten to problem solve in a meaningful way. And just, right, that's, that's one of the beauties of, of wild environments is you, got, you have to do a lot of problem solving. Uh, just, can I jump over this creek? Can I walk across these rocks? Am I going to do this or not do this? Or left or the right? How do I keep from getting lost? Just the first time people are actually given that opportunity, it, it transforms them in terms of their self-efficacy. So I, that, I think that's going to be a really uh, powerful intervention. Huh. Yeah, it like returns them to when they were childlike and they were trying things again, the joy of that, which is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. One thing that comes to mind is, this is the last topic I have in mind, robots. How, how much of physical intelligence research is connected with what, where, where we are at with robots and what they can do and what we can program them to do? Is that like on par with where research is? Right. I, I could have written this whole book through the lens of like, how do you build a robot, right? You, yeah. you could have set it up that way, but I'm not a roboticist and I would have given it um, poor treatment. And that's a really fast moving target, right? So anything I say today about robots right. is probably wrong, right? Because just the, the, the technologies are improving so rapidly. But if, if you just kind of go on the web and look at state-of-the-art robots and just give it a critical eye and say, what, what, what are they doing and not doing that we, would, that we would want them to do? These are biomimetic robots, right? We want them to be like people. Mm-hmm. Um, a big one is surfaces, right? So they can, they can walk bipedally, but the relationship, they don't see the surface the way we see a surface and adjust their motions based on that surface. I mean, mm-hmm. they do at a crude level, but not, I mean, the degree to which you will just ever so slightly adjust your gait when you walk across cobblestones versus, you know, dirt. It's, it's phenomenal. They don't have any of that, really. And that's a big area in robotics is, is bring, basically creating artificial vision that sees the surfaces, reshapes the walking so that it's sensitive to that. Uh, that's a big deal. I mean, we're not even talking about doing tasks or you know, problem solving. This is just walking, on, walking across different kinds of terrains. That's a big deal. Um, so it, that, that'll get sorted. Again, all these things will get figured out, right? But it right. just tells you, it tells you stuff we've evolved to do. Are, they're really hard engineering problems that evolution figured out, right? Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a big one. Another one is speed. 
um, you know, uh, we're a biologic, a really noisy biologic entity. So the, the trans, you know, the transmission times down nerves, the time it takes to bring feedback back into the brain, the noisiness of muscle contractions. We're a really sloppy robot in some ways. And yet we're really, really smooth. <laughs> right? We still pull it off, right? We can still hit a tennis ball that's got a curve on it. Right. And robots can start to do this, but in some ways they get to cheat because we're going to use, you know, electronics to do it where the conduction times are so fast. Uh, um, you can kind of, some of the, and that we can cut down on some of the noise uh, that, that's inherent in biological systems. But to flip it around, if you, if you took a robot and made it deal with the delays we have in conduction times, and it had to overcome the amount of noise we have, they couldn't do it. They'd be horrible, <laughs> right? So, so we're, we're giving them technical... We're allowing them to bypass a lot of the technical uh, problems that we face. And so there's some really clever ways that sort of the, the human brain can kind of speed up action and make it more precise and fluid. That, uh, and we know sort of theoretically how to do that. So now how to embed that into robots is also going to be a, a big deal so that they're more fluid and graceful. Mm -hmm. I noticed this as they progressed through them. First, they had to have them connected to an electrical connection, and then uh, they had to give them smooth services. One by one, it makes it more difficult so yeah. they can catch up to us at some point. Yeah. One, one other thing that comes to mind is, yeah, we continue to deconstruct each element. There's little tips, like a long time ago, for a month, people would fast for a month, and then later on, like uh, David Sinclair, the anti-aging individual, would talk about how intermittent fasting causes chemicals to be released in the body or walking in nature would just be recommended many years ago. But then you start yeah. to see like the green or the different benefits of that. It's nice to deconstruct the elements across the way. One thing I always like to check at the end of the episode, if you had a message, like a megaphone to all people, what is the message you would say to everyone about the importance of understanding physical intelligence or their own motor function? Uh, the most gain comes from complexity, variety, and surprise in the natural environment. Those, those are the places where you learn to move best and you gain the most physical intelligence. That's wonderful. I'm fully with it. I want to thank you for having been on episode 244 of the show. This has been Dr. <laughs> Scott Grafton, author of Physical Intelligence. Wonderful material. Thanks. You know it. And we are out.